Let my heart be quiet, Lord, let my heart be still. What a wonderful prayer for us, especially as we go through a time in our semester where, frankly, life is not still, is it? (laughs) If it's still for you, you probably still have yet to look at your syllabi and realize what's going on. In that case, uh, reg office, perhaps you need to do a change in classes, Uh, Mrs. Price, there might be no tutoring, though, that can bring you back from that cliff. But I hope that you are looking forward to a time this summer when your time is going to be more your own. Perhaps you have some reading that you want to do. I have many things on my reading list, few of which will actually get read. I'm good at making lists, poor at actually reading. But one of the books that, as I was thinking through the classics that really shaped my life growing up, I thought, maybe I need to give that another read. Don't you just love picture books? You're going through a book like this, but can you imagine, if you would, the first time you go through a book like this, and it's all these neat little pictures and cartoon violence, and don't worry, I think Mr. Huff and I can both agree this isn't going to lead anyone to do anything unmoral and godly with your entertainment choices. But um, you get to the end of the book, first time through it, and your parents look at you and said, so did you find Waldo? (gasps) who's Waldo? Because you can't read, okay? You can't read the front. And suddenly you realize Waldo is there. In fact, Waldo is on every single page of the book. And you're like, whoa! And then upon further review, you read the book, read, and you find him. And it's exciting to find him. There's a book in our Old Testament that is a lot like Where's Waldo? That's the book of Esther. Because not are we trying to find Waldo in the book of Esther. If you can find him there, you're using a wrong Bible, okay? Trust me. But we're trying to find God. And when we realize that God is everywhere in the book of Esther, it gets exciting to find him. But God is not there in front. He's not sending an angel of the Lord to kill all the firstborns. He's not parting the Red Sea. He's not sending manna. He's not having the sun stand still. He is behind the scenes working, but he is behind every single scene in Esther. In fact, you could almost say that the theme verse of Esther is not actually in the book of Esther. It's in the book of Proverbs. Where Proverbs 16.33 tells us that the lot or the dice or whatever chance object that you're throwing to try to choose something, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. It's interesting because when we get to the book of Esther, there is a lot that is cast. It's called a pur, or if you have the, the plural, it's called the purim, and that's why you have the feast of purim that the Jews celebrate, it's the Feast of Lots, the Feast of Chance, the Feast of Chance that isn't chance, because God is behind the scenes working to protect and to provide for his people. And so in the next 26 minutes, we are going to do what might seem impossible. He's like, well, the story of Esther seems impossible. Yes, but even more so to preach through the entire book in one 26-minute period. Do you have your Bibles ready? Fingers stretched? Let's start off with the background. 
timeline, and immediately we all gloss over. Numbers, graphs, charts, so we get this in class. Can I just tell you, this is going to be important, not because there's a quiz, because we're going to come back to the timing of Esther to make some very significant statements at the end. But you have the decree of Cyrus, 538 years before Christ was born. And he said, Jews, go back. Took them two years, 536. They go back to build their temple. Doesn't get built till 526. And then about 480, 478, Esther is taken into the king's court. Becomes the queen. And in 474, the primary events with Haman happen. And hold on to that date, 474. So, what do we need to know about the book of Esther? Well, let's walk through it. We start off in chapter 1, verse 3. In the third year of his reign, this is the king, Ahasuerus, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, and the power of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the princes and the provinces were before him. Few things. Key word, before him. That idea is going to come up 19 times in the entire book. Before the king. Also, the idea of favor is going to show up a whole lot. We're going to be noticing that. But you have this king, Ahasuerus. You might know him from a different name, Xerxes. And this feast happened three years before he invaded Greece. And that's when you have the Battle of Thermopylae and the 300 Spartans happening. That was Esther's husband who did that. Some people actually think that this feast was a big uh, invasion planning party. Because logistics in that day took a little longer than flying massive ships across the ocean. Verse 9, we find out that his wife Vashti is having a feast too. It's a good Baptist potluck going on, lasts for many, many days. Verse 10, he says, on the seventh day, the heart of the king was merry with wine. Other words, in Wisconsin, we'd say he was drunk out of his mind. And so he called the queen to appear before him, and all those dudes sent the message. Verse 11 and 12, Vashti refuses. Right or wrong, she refuses, and we don't know all the reasons why. And so he gets mad, and then his counselors in verse 19 give him a plan that says, hey, you should make a rule that every wife should submit to her husband. Just make it a rule. Okay, we're not going to make any comments with that. Verse 21. And the saying pleased the king and the princes. They were happy about it. Yes, me in charge. Woman, submit. But what if? What if Hashuarius had not held the feast? What if he had not drunkenly called for Vashti? What if Vashti had not actually refused? What if the counselors didn't come up with the plan? What if the king had not accepted the plan? Can I say, if any of those things did not happen, I wouldn't be up here telling you about the story of Ruth today. Chapter 2. In verse 4, They have another plan. Hey, not only should every wife submit, but maybe you should get rid of Vashti. The king said, okay. Then verse 5, we're introduced to some of our key players. Now there was in Shusan, or Susa, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. He was a Benjamite of descendants. And he, verse 7, brought up Hadessah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. Mordecai was not the uncle. He was the older cousin who adopted Esther or Hadessah. Why? Because she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful. That's going to come into important, okay, that's an important detail for the rest of this text. If she was ugly, the story of Esther would not have happened. 
So what happens from there? Esther, verse 8, was gathered. I don't think she went willingly. She was constricted, forced into the king's harem. But verse 9, notice the presence of one of our key words. And the maiden pleased him. She had favor before the keeper of the woman. And she obtained kindness from him. Verse 15, same thing is happening. Now when Esther, the daughter of this guy, the uncle of Mordecai, which by the way, this guy is an appropriate way to pronounce any Hebrew name that you can't pronounce on the spot. What happened? And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all that's happening. Verse 17 through 18, the king loved Esther above all women, and she obtained grace and favor. You see that key idea keep coming up. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts. It was a happy, happy time. But then in verse 20, after a while, Esther's the queen. Mordecai hears of a plot. He tells Esther of the plot to take Ahasuerus' life. And she says to her husband, hey, this is a bad thing. Maybe you should take care of it. And a couple people take an instant weight loss program. I guess they're hung on a tree, so not quite weight loss. But I ask you, if the plan was not suggested to gather up the women... If Esther's parents hadn't died, if Esther wasn't chosen, if she didn't find favor, if the king didn't love her, if Mordecai hadn't overheard, if Esther hadn't said to the king this had happened, what would have happened? Well, I wouldn't be here talking about the book of Esther today. All these things are connecting dots. Chapter 3. We find out that in chapter 3 there's this guy named Haman. Now, if we were reading this story in a Jewish synagogue uh, for the Feast of Purim, every time you hear Haman's voice, you're supposed to hiss and boo and things like that. Not really appropriate in this set context. Have a party later and read Esther and do it. <laughs> but you had this man, Haman, and he was esteemed, and everyone was supposed to pay homage to him. But Mordecai did not. Verse 5, he didn't bow down. So verse 6, and he thought to scorn, Haman thought to scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. In other words, he didn't just want to get back at Mordecai. He wanted to get back at all of Mordecai's people who were the Jews. And so he sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom. And verse 7, in the first month, first month of the year, important detail. In the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, Lot, that the lot before that is a lot before Haman from the day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Haman, in his plan to kill all the Jews, threw a lot or cast a lot for the day and the, the month and the date. And he in the first month landed on the twelfth month. Even in their calendar, most years, there were still only twelve months. In other words, it landed on the farthest possible date. Coincidence? Thank you. We're getting there. Pixar quote for the day. The lot is cast into the lap, for the disposing thereof is of the Lord. Haman takes his plan to the king, and in verse 11, the king agrees to it. And gives all of the silver. You say, well, how could he agree to it? Because Ahasuerus is not a good guy. History knows him as a jerk, as a cruel person, not a virtuous person. Makes the events to follow even more amazing. Verse 15. 
it went out, the end of the verse, but the city of Susa was perplexed. How is this happening? What is happening? All these people are going to die, are they not? Well, let me ask a few questions. What if Haman had not been mad at Mordecai? Mordecai was doing no harm, just hurting his pride. What if the lot had not fallen that far away? What if it had fallen just three weeks from then? What if Ahasuerus had just said, no, I'm not going to allow you to have state-ordered genocide? We wouldn't be reading the book of Esther today. Esther chapter 4, we go into it. And, and verse four, first four verses, Mordecai is very upset. Don't you think he should be? His entire people, because of him, are going to be wiped out. So he goes to Esther, and you have this back and forth that's happening. And finally, he says to Esther in verse 13, Think not that thyself, that thou shalt escape into the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall there be an enlargement and deliverance arrived to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows whether thou art come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai says, if you're not willing to go before the king and plead our case, there's going to be some other deliverance that's going to come, but you aren't going to escape. But what would you think if God providentially placed you here to do something. There's a feast that Esther calls, a fast that Esther calls three days later. She says, yes, I will go. But what if Mordecai had just tried to run away and saved his own skin? What if Esther had said, I am too scared. I will not go before the king and risk my life. If either of those things happened, we would not be talking about Esther today. But chapter 5, verse 1, it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel. She dressed for success. And she stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne, on the throne of the house, and over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther, the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor. Same key word. God worked to bring her favor before the king. And what would she ask for? Verse 4, she asked for this banquet. They had a banquet. She asked for a second banquet, and they planned a second banquet. But in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, Haman goes, goes back home, and it's the best of times and the worst of times. He just got honored by going to this feast, just him, Esther, and the king. And then what happens? He saw Mordecai, and it bugged him to death. That's not in the Hebrew, but it's what happened. So he says, what should I do, family? And they said, you should build a gallow and you should hang Mordecai because that's the simple way to solve all problems in life. Maybe then. But can I ask you, what happened if Esther would not have found favor? What if Hashuerus had not been agreeable? What if Haman's mood had not swung so drastically and he was just so happy he saw Mordecai and he said, eh, I'll forget it. It doesn't really matter. Well, at the very least, the book of Esther would not have turned out the way that it did. Chapter 6, verse 1, insomnia struck, and not because Ahasuerus was staying up late writing papers, okay? This was he could not legitimately sleep. And he commanded the book of the records of the Chronicles that they be read before him. They went and found a book in verse 2 that was the story of Mordecai saving the king's life. And then we get to verse 3, and Ahasuerus asks, what has been done? And they answered, there is nothing done for him. And Ahasuerus had enough self-awareness to say, I should really thank that guy. 
And so Haman ends up in the court. Why is Haman there? Because he wants to say, hey, can I just hang Mordecai? And apparently that's a middle-of-the-night request that you should make to the king. So Haman gets called up and says, what, what should I do to honor? Completely misreads the situation, finds out it's Mordecai who needs to be honored, and Haman has to humiliate himself by dragging uh, a horse with Mordecai on it through the streets and proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth in. And he goes home and he pouts. Verse 12. He was mourning. Interesting. His shame he was mourning of, whereas the Jewish people were mourning about their genocide. You see this guy's misplaced values that are going on. And what does Haman's family do? They say, this doesn't look very good. You're probably going to die. It's going to turn out poorly. Verse 14, he's taken quickly to the second banquet, and the action starts to heat up. But I ask you, what if insomnia had not been a problem? What if they had grabbed a different record to read? What if Haman had not acted in his pride? We would not have the same story of Esther that we have today. So then we get into verse chapter 7. We're at the second feast. Verse 3, Esther the queen answered the king, If I have found favor, key word, in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given at my petition and my people at my request, for we have been sold. And the king says, Who done it? Verse 5. Verse 6. Esther said, the adversary, the enemy, is this wicked Haman. What happens? Haman is rooted. He's found out. And the king, who's not a godly king, he allowed genocide to be state policy. The king says, but she's pretty. (laughs) Yeah? (laughs) I like her. I don't like you as much, therefore, you're in trouble. The king leaves in anger. He comes back, and when he comes back, Haman is over top Esther, pleading and begging for his life. And the king, he misreads the situation and says, you're going to die because of this, as if genocide wasn't enough. (laughs) So eventually, verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared to Mordecai. Then verse 8, and on that day, chapter 8, Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, to Esther the queen, and Mordecai came before the king. And this whole reversal starts to happen. Verse 4, Ahasuerus gives the scepter to Esther and Mordecai and says, do something. So they did it. They passed another law in verse 9, where they passed the law that they could fight back. Verse 17, in all the provinces and every city, whithersoever the king commanded and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness and a feast and a good day. It was happiness. And many of the people of the land became Jews. In other words, there was such a reversal that if you were not a Jew, you're like, I feel like I should be on that side, okay? (laughs) See you all, love you all, you know, peace out. I'm going to go with the Jews because they tide flowing that way huge reversal. Chapter 9, you read through it in chapter, in verse 2, in verse 5, in verse 15, you have these accounts of how they won victories over their enemies months later. The end of the chapter in verse chapter 9, you have Mordecai and Esther coming together to establish the feast of Purim, the feast of lots, to talk about how the Jewish people were delivered. But the last verse of the book 
Mordecai the Jew was next to the king Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude and of his brethren, seeking wealth of his people and speaking peace to all of his seed. So what if Esther had not told the truth? What if Ahasuerus had not been angry? What if he hadn't begged, Haman hadn't begged him that way? What if he, Ahasuerus the king came back and he didn't misread the situation? What if he hadn't allowed there to be a second rule made? What if the enemies had not melted before the Jews? You see how many potentials this story had to change, but it didn't. So where's God in all of this? He's everywhere. But God's not out on front and stage. He's behind the scenes, working to protect and to provide his people with what they need. Can I encourage you then with three truths? First truth is that God works through everyday details of life. And I just have a few of those details on the screen right now. But there you have them. How God works in the book is he's piecing together things that don't really seem important, but in his plan were of absolute necessity. And so whether it was um, Hashwares just being born, that was God. Vasti saying no, that was God. I actually counted up 23 total things that needed to happen just right in order for the story to come. I encourage you, you read Esther, you come up with your own list. But God is there working in the details. So you might ask, how does that apply to my life? We're going to get to application in a little bit, but can I encourage you with some things to avoid? If God works in every detail of my life, maybe I need to be more concerned about every detail. Like, what should I wear today? I mean, have you ever been standing in front of your closet and you're like, what do I wear? I will tell you, I did not put much prayer and thought into this. And you say, Dr. Goodwill, it shows. Okay? (laughs) The only thought I had in my mind while getting dressed today was if I go downstairs and my wife sees me, I might be sent upstairs to change, okay? (laughs) My wife has four kids, R3 and me. (laughs) But sometimes there can be a paralysis when we look at all the details and say, I don't want to mess things up. What if God wanted me to eat pepperoni pizza instead of sausage pizza? The answer is it was supposed to be the three meats pizza, okay? That's what God's will is for your life. But we can't let those details paralyze us. Because if we try to make it about us, we're missing God's providence. It's about God bending things and using things. And frankly, in the moment, we can't connect those dots. But sometimes it's years later when we look back and we say, this small detail and that small detail, God did use it. But paralysis is not the right response. What about secondly? Hyperanalysis. Or what I sometimes call mythical theology, where I look at my life and I read the tea leaves. I didn't pray this morning, and there's snow. Maybe God's punishing me. Maybe it is your fault, I don't know. (laughs) Or maybe there's a flat tire, God's angry with me. Or maybe God gave me the flat tire because he wanted to protect me, and I was going to get in an accident. Or maybe I got this job offer and this camp offer in the same week because God's... 
Can I tell you, if we get to that point where we're trying to read the tea leaves, we're honestly just like Haman, who just threw a lot to try to see what was the best choice. That's not the right response. What about just carelessness? Doesn't matter, so who cares? Well, that flies in the face of many things that God says, especially whatever your hand finds to do. Do with thy might. Do all to the glory of God. But God does work through everyday details. It's a part of his working behind the scenes. Number two, God works as his people act. Esther did not have a prophet. Esther did not read in the word of God how God was going to save them from Haman, some prophecy. Esther did not have a vision or the word of God come to her. Esther and Mordecai just made a plan, and they did it. And God used it. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that we plan in life is going to be used of God. We still have wisdom issues, and we still have to obey his specific commands in Scripture. But sometimes, God just works as you get busy doing something, and he redirects as it goes. Third, God works through unexpected reversals. This happens in chapter 9, verse 1, where it says it was turned to the contrary... But you think of the fall of Vashti and then the rise of Esther. Haman, who goes from a high-ranking official to a high-hanging official. Mordecai, who was supposed to be hung, is now in a high position. The order of the second cancels out the first law. The Jews, who thought they were going to be destroyed, ended up destroying. God is working through all these things. So what? We're back to the map and everyone glazes over. I'm a chart guy. I think in charts. You notice the two names that are added there? I want to introduce you to two young men. Ezra. Ezra, who was a ready scribe, and about 14, 15 years after the events of Esther, would take a group of people and return to Israel, Jerusalem and become a great leader for God. He was in Babylon, probably late teens, when the events of Esther came, when he heard of the decree and he saw God's deliverance. We can't draw a direct line between then what he did, but notice how he acts. Ezra went up, he was a ready scribe, according to the good, the hand of the Lord was upon him. That idea of the hand of God and a good hand appears six times in his book. He was always looking back and saying that God behind the scenes was working to protect and to provide. I don't think that is a coincidence. What about Nehemiah? Nehemiah, we find him in Susa, in the same city. And if he as cupbearer had any experience, you're thinking he's probably about my age, which would make him about the age of my kids. When in the same city, he would see Mordecai walk around. He maybe knew Esther. And he saw his parents struggle through this decree and have great rejoicing. And what was he like? He was constantly looking at God and saying, God's in control of all these things. Ezra and Nehemiah ended up being men of prayer, men of praise, and men of action, obedience. Why? I think it's because they understood that God's working behind the scenes. And we can trust him in everything. So what about you and I today? Well, I think we need to go outside the book of Esther to really find our application. And that's, I think, where we see Ezra and Nehemiah come into the story. How do we then respond? Can I say, first of all, with confident prayer, 
Ezra and Nehemiah knew that God was in control, so they went to him and prayed. So you this summer, when that camper frustrates you, when there's conflict at home, when you're worried about that internship and how you're going to do, when you're worried about finances, when you're hurt about that breakup, God's working behind the scenes to protect and provide. Pray. Praise. I mentioned before, God's in the details of life. Yes, he is, but sometimes it's years later that we see how God uses those things. So could I encourage you, just like Ezra and Nehemiah, who looked back at their life and said the good hand of God was upon us, start a journal and just record small blessings. And at the end of the summer or five years from now, go back and read and see how God maybe took one or two of those things and used them in big ways to protect and provide. Post notes on your mirror talking about prayer requests and praises that happen because of those. And rather than trying to interpret the details in the moment, what's God doing? Record it and look back. And as you reflect, praise him. And then finally, obey him. You have faith that God, you have to have faith that God is going to work in all these things. And as you have a plan, and that plan is to obey God and glorify Him, He's going to use that plan in some way. So musicians, if you wouldn't mind making your way back. So this summer, I don't know what you're going to face. I don't know what I'm going to face. I don't know what we as an institution are going to face or as America are going to face. But can we just say with confidence that God's in control and working behind the scenes? You might not be able to remember all of these points when I meet you on the sidewalk in two minutes. I get that. But can I encourage you, when you are struggling this summer, one, just think of the story of Esther and teach these truths to yourself. But then two, sing yourself a song. I personally would choose the last stanza of How Can I Fear? Jesus is king. He controls everything. And what should that cause us to do? Realize God's there, God's working, and God's good. And then as a response to pray, praise, and obey. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing of is of the Lord. Father, we thank you for these truths. Help us to be convinced that you are working behind the scenes. And we don't know why, but Lord, you don't call us to ask why or to ask what, but to ask who, and it's you. So may we not fear whatever we face. Be glorified in what we do now with this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.